With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 49 of Collectible Live. Today is Thursday, October the 20th, 2022, and my name is Jeremy Lee. I do want to thank everybody who joined us last time with our guest, Karn Rye. We had a great episode. You can check that out and all the other episodes of Collectible Live on both the Collectible App YouTube channel and the Sports Cards Live YouTube channel. But let's get to today's episode. Let's bring out our guest. He is the CEO of Collectible. Ezra Levine, welcome to Collectible Live. How are you doing on this fine Thursday, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. I think the last time I was on the show was in March. So I've got the benefit of sitting back and being a viewer of this show every week. It's always exciting uh, when we can kind of curate the guests and bring you know, real value to the community. But every once in a while, it's good for me to come on, check in with people. Uh, and today, my understanding is we're doing a little bit of a Q&A. Our team uh, sourced some questions from our community, all now, my understanding is that a bunch of them came in via DM. So excited to uh, see what the questions are. I've really not seen too many of them yet. So I'm excited to dive in and uh, excited for this to be pretty organic. All right. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to this too. I have, a, I have that, that list of questions in front of me, as well as a couple that I sort of came up with myself. We will get to as many of these as we can. And I want to let everybody know who is watching. Feel free to post your questions and comments in the chat, but please understand that we have... I can't even count the number of bullets I have here, about 20, about 20 questions teed up. So my my guess is that if you have a question, it's already on this list. So we <laughs> might save questions for the end. But Ezra, let's start off with, why don't you give us a catch us up a little bit um, from your perspective, from your vantage point, what is the state of fractional ownership within the hobby right now? Yeah, look, I think it's still very young, very, very young, right? So today, fractional really still exists kind of in its own little separate ecosystem, right? You have to come to Collectible or another fractional ownership company to do it, right? And I think, you know, that's not always going to be the case. I, I very much believe in fractional uh, being integrated into a lot of larger marketplaces, into uh, perhaps a lot of, you know, larger wealth management platforms. We very much uh, believe fractional is one of the major themes, I believe, uh, that is going to be a massive trend in the Collectible space for, uh, for a very long time. I think we are very much uh, early days, early innings. Obviously, it's not been without pain points. We see these pain points probably more than anyone does, and we feel these pain points, I can assure you, more than anyone does. And so our team works tirelessly. We've got a great team, a team full of collectors and investors, a team full of integrity who is listening, and we see and we hear, and we work hard every day to uh, produce the best product we can. 
Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, you, you mentioned the word integrity just now. And while we were spending 15 minutes before we went live and I went through a couple of questions that I had and your your response to me was, let's just have an authentic conversation, bring up anything you want. So uh, I, I really, you know, stand by or, or, or can can uh, really just endorse the integrity that, that you definitely do have. I want to say a quick hello to, we have Danny Black from Sports Ball. Danny, what's going on? Good to see you. Uh, out there and was good seeing you at the Beckett Industry Summit. So the next question I have for you, Ezra, is how has fractional ownership in collectibles performed during these turbulent times? And by turbulent times, I think the, 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 the asker of the question is referring to just the general economy. Yeah, it's been very turbulent over the last you know year, right? You know, it really started probably back in October was kind of the market top for a lot of these assets, not just in the collectible space, but you know in the world at large. I mean, I would say, you know, look, I mean, if you gave me the performance of fractional markets and you gave me the performance of the sports card market or any of these collectible uh, markets, given where the world is I and mean, given the fact that, you know, uh, other alternative assets like cryptocurrencies are down, what, 60 percent? The fact that, you know, British gilts, what, are down 60 percent? You know, the fact that the stock market is down 30 percent, whatever it is. I mean, the fact that, you know, our market, you know, our collectible 25 index still remains up 12 percent. You know, broader markets uh, in collectible, I think they're down 20%. Uh, and, and there's obviously, you know, some granularity to that numbers we can go into. But look, I think the card market and the collectible market for that, you know, for that is actually doing exceptionally well, right? I mean, we're obviously aware that there's still challenges and differences in liquidity profiles. So we can also talk about that if you'd like. But look, I mean, I think overall, given where the world is, given the turbulence, I mean, you know, you see, you know, real estate is down 30 something percent. On the year, you see the NASDAQ, right? The tech stocks are down 30 something percent. So, uh, all these things considered, given mortgage rates at 7% and inflation where it is, I mean, I'm thrilled with where the market is. Obviously, we all like to see green on the screens, of course, but sometimes that's not the case. You know, we've always believed that collectibles are a legitimate alternative asset class. I know a lot of people in this hobby, when they hear that, they shudder. It makes them uh, very uncomfortable. And I understand that perspective as well. But at the end of the day, the, the, the numbers don't lie, right? These are uh, as much. Uh, and not everything is a financial instrument. Not everything's an investment, of course. Um, but there is a segment of the hobby that is. There's a segment of the collectible community that is. And so we firmly believe that. And we're building a market infrastructure and a regulatory environment to support that. It all depends where you, what your entry point was. You know, we talk about turbulent times. But if you look at the, the graphs, the indices of the hobby from 2010 till today, uh, you've got this this nice little upswing, then you've got this big blip, and then it continues to rise. Or, or it, it, where we are today is still above where we were in early 2020. So uh, we just we just experienced a big a big rise and then a fall in between. Uh, <laughs> Danny Black has two questions: Is he the best looking guy in the hobby? Uh, no, you're not, Danny. I uh, just look right over there. And then secondly, uh, can Ezra discuss what it would take to get institutional investors? So I'll put that over to you, Ezra. Yeah, well, A, uh, you know, I, I saw Danny last week in New York City. Always great to see Danny. I also saw him at the Industry Summit. So I uh, appreciate what Danny's doing for the hobby too. He's got a big presence. I also want to shout out to Danny. I saw he wrote a great article on the women in the hobby, right? There's a couple of amazing women who are really driving this industry forward, including our own Sarah Martin, who joined us recently. So uh, great, great work to Danny. Uh, institutional investors, right? That's something that we've been focused on a lot. You know, even back at the National, we hosted an event where we really bridged institutional investors with the hobby community. We brought a lot of them to a dinner at the National. It's something that 
you know, from our vantage point, they're very interested, right? They're very interested. And I think, you know, you've seen the emergence of it in a very small scale. You've seen a bunch of funds that have invested in, again, small, small dollars. Uh, but then, you know, we, we see larger participants wanting to get into it. We, uh, we did something back in August with JP Morgan, where we put a, our own special advisor, the former chairman of SEC, Jay Clayton, was on a panel, uh, which was broadcast the entire wealth management uh, division of JP Morgan. We saw Goldman Sachs, right? Goldman Sachs for the first time uh, at their hedge fund and private equity dinner or seminar, they had an investing in collectible seminar, right? So you're starting to see these things that tell you that, hey, look, big money is watching this space. I think the, the legitimate questions they have are what's the conduit? What's the vehicle for them to get meaningful exposure? How big can the market get? And you know what the regulatory and the transparency of the industry is, and you know that goes really to what collectible is building. I do believe a fractional will be the vehicle where institutional capital can participate, and so that's that's a big opportunity, one one that we see uh, very clearly, and probably we probably have the best tentacles and the best vantage point of institutional capital participation in this category. So, you know, to, to sum it up, I would say it's coming, right? And it's it's happened at a very small scale, but I do believe this is really just the start of this. And I think, you know, again, when you look at the performance of these assets, uh, obviously, you know, you can segment the market in various different ways, but blue chips have done incredibly well, right? The things that are irreplaceable have done incredibly well. The things that are true investment grade that are, you know, scarce and low pop have done incredibly well in this climate, right? So I think that gives a lot of credibility and credence to the market. And so I fully expect, you know, over the next however long it takes, you know, two to three years, I fully anticipate institutional involvement to be uh, quite quite large in this category. All right, let's go on to the next question. Uh, can you speak to the volume of shares that are being traded on the collectible secondary market and any planned strategies to increase liquidity? Yeah, great, great question here. Obviously, you know, we're very acutely aware, aware of the fact that liquidity is challenged, right? That is something that we track very closely. I mean, internally, what I can say is that secondary market transaction volume is up 300% year over year versus last year, right? So we are seeing more activity, obviously not nearly to the extent that we want it to be. Um, but, you know, I think some of the efforts that Collectible will be doing over the next, uh, say, year or so, we're working on a couple of meaningful partnerships that I think could bring a lot of liquidity. We're working on being patched into various distribution networks, primarily with accredited investors that I think, uh, you know, could bring a lot of liquidity. So I would say, look, it's something that it, it's a problem, right? It's an issue right now. Obviously, you know, it's hard to really uh, kind of move large blocks of shares. It's hard to really move large liquidity in this market. And we're very much aware of it. It's very uh, acutely tracked. And I think that will likely be solved through partnerships. It'll likely be uh, solved through strategic relationships. And we're excited to roll those out when they uh, come to fruition. It seems to me like there's a big opportunity there because I'm, I'm just aware of several assets on the platform that are trading at under recent comps for similar or the same items. And uh, there's a podcast I listen to called the the Six One Five Collector, and they spend time uh, all they spend time often in their po podcast looking at some of these assets. Yeah, and uh, I think I think there there is some opportunity there. It seems like some people are just, uh, well, seems like a lot of people just need to get comfortable with the platform mm -hmm. or with the whole concept of. Yeah, you know, it's funny on that, on that front. Our, our team, we've got a great data team here at Collectible. Uh, they actually ran some numbers. And again, this is not securities advice. I got my compliance guy sitting in the, in the office next door. This is not securities advice. Uh, but based on recent comparables uh, on our market today, it appears like uh, there is 40 assets, right? Four zero assets that are below, that are 50% uh, 
uh, or more below recent comparable sales on other marketplaces, other auction houses. So there's a wealth of opportunity. And I think, yeah, Jeremy, to your point, right? You know, it is bridging that gap, right? It is getting people to understand fractional, to adopt fractional, and to really see uh, the value and the opportunity there. Um, obviously, we've had a lot of buyout offers recently, some at material premiums to last trade on the secondary markets. So I think this is very much part of the adoption curve, and uh, we are working very hard to try to close some of those gaps. Yeah, and I think I think even though even though we we see that the the last trade value is can be below a recent market comp on a same or similar item, the problem there the challenge is still liquidity because mm -hmm. if somebody wants to go buy at that price, there may not be an, an option to yep. there may not be a sell offer out there, and then the vice versa works as well. Um, speaking of that, let's let's talk about uh, the LeBron Carmelo dual logo man. That was an offer was just a buyout offer was just received by Collectible, and uh, the offer was for six hundred thousand dollars. This asset did IPO on the platform for one point zero seven million dollars. So should the offer be accepted, that's a significant loss for the shareholders. Um, do you expect it to sell? What, what I mean, listen, you, you don't. You may not know because the vote uh, the vote is in progress right now, I believe. But do you expect it to sell? And if that comes in at a loss, what do you think uh, some of the repercussions might be at that? Yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a great question. Uh, one, I don't know. Right. I mean, so we have a process where when an offer comes in, we take a 48 hour pro rata uh, shareholder survey. So that process is ongoing. We announced the uh, results yesterday. Um, you know, so no, you know, no personal opinion on if it's a good offer or a bad offer. What I will say is, you know, the market was telling us, at least in our platform was they thought it was materially lower. Right. I mean, I think it was trading at 200 grand, 220 grand in and around that ballpark, right? So this obviously represents a material premium to the price that people could have bought this at for the last couple of months. I think actually for the last year or so, right? So uh, always interesting when, you know, the wisdom of the crowds kind of uh, votes what they think an asset is worth. Obviously uh, there is at least one buyer out there who believe that's worth a lot more. Uh, our team, you know, at the time, price this asset even higher. Look, I mean, I think, you know, there's, it's tough, right? I mean, we, we obviously we never want assets to go below IPO value, but that's also not realistic, right? You know, you talk to a lot of dealers and sometimes, you know, you buy things and they're worth less, right? And you have to kind of live with that reality. You look across the, the public markets. I mean, there's a lot of uh, assets that trade well below IPO price and never see IPO price again. Obviously, there's the contrary too. We've produced 27 exits with an average premium of, you know, 60% above IPO price, right? So some of this is it's just the, the whims of the market. Collectible doesn't control the market. We are not the market, right? We really are the sort of financial uh, infrastructure uh, and the technology and the regulatory body essentially that you know kind of allows people to buy, sell and trade these assets. And our hope is that the market ultimately will kind of realize what the fair market value is. So uh, again, obviously we want everything to go straight up, but you know, this is a market, this is the financial market and that's just not uh, you know, sort of realistic uh, in, in, that, in that context. You know, the, that particular card, this LeBron Carmelo duel, if there was ever an incentive to get active on the collectible platform in the secondary market, I mean, I the last trade, as you said, was around, I, I don't know exactly, but two hundred to $250,000 market cap. The offer came in at six hundred. dollars uh, The offer came in well in excess of what the recent trade was. I, I believe that's where the opportunity lies, and, and that's where people could really um, generate some, some profits by, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and look, man, I, th I think it's also important to realize, you know, who's ever making this offer, uh, I'm sure they're not doing it for charity, right? I'm sure they're not doing it because, you know, out of the kindness of their own hearts, I'm sure they think that there's an opportunity there as well, that they can, 
you know, make some margin or that there's growth potential above where they're going to buy. I don't think anyone would go to buy something thinking that they're pinning the exact top and they're never to see a profit from it. So obviously, you know, this is a market, you know, it's a, it's amazing that people can express their view. It's amazing that people have had opportunities to buy uh, assets lower and hopefully realize a profit over time. But again, you know, again, we, we want everything to go straight up. That's just not realistic. And, you know, uh, our job is to provide opportunities. And I think here there's uh, there was and has been a big opportunity in the secondary market for the last year. Okay, let's move along. Uh, the K-1 issue, the tax reporting issue that you guys went through for the taxation year ended December 31st, 2021. Mm-hmm. My understanding uh, was that it was a bit of a headache. Yeah. Uh, people want to know, will K-1s be needed moving forward and how will the overall tax situation be improved? Yeah, I mean, this was a headache. It really was a headache. There's there's, there's no sugarcoating that. Uh, you know, our team was working as hard as they possibly could to produce these in as timely of a fashion uh, as possible. You know, I think without being in the fractional business, sometimes you uh, don't fully appreciate, um, you know, what fractional companies have to do to remain regulatory compliant. We are an SEC regulated organization. We are subject to securities laws here in the United States and soon securities laws all across the world. So there are things that uh, we have to do. Um, you know, again, so we worked as hard as we possibly could to produce these in a timely fashion. Um, we did get it done, but it was certainly not without pain points, not to sugarcoat anything. We did recently take a shareholder vote essentially to convert these into a, a little mini corporations, which would alleviate the K-1 burden. That was approved almost unanimously by shareholders, which our team was happy to hear. So um, going forward, we will have to produce for assets. I want to make sure I get this correct. For assets that uh, were offered and IPO'd and were funded before January 1st, 2022, there will be one additional round of K-1s. That will be, uh, I'm very confident we'll get those out on time. I'll hopefully have them out by February or March of uh, 2023. So I do not expect a delay in producing these K-1s, but there will be one additional round of K-1s. Going forward, any asset that was offered and IPO'd after January 1st, 2022 does not have a K-1 requirement, and any assets going forward will not have a K-1 requirement. So, um, you know, I chalked that up to a growing pain. Obviously, we do apologize to uh, any of our members and investors who were affected by this, uh, and um, I'm glad that we solved for it. Good, good stuff. Um, always good to continuously improve and make things easier and less friction for everybody involved. All right, here's the next uh, the next question that came in. It's a bit of a series of questions, so let me read these out to you. Uh, will Collectible look to market undervalued assets for potential buyers, for potential buyouts? Would you consider once a year letting asset owners vote to send them to auction? And how can the gap close between recent comps and current secondary market prices? So a lot there. Let me, yeah. re- let me just... Do you want to take it or do you want me to reread the the first one? I think I got it. I think I got it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love I love this question, right? Because, you know, back to what we were saying earlier, there's 40 assets uh, that, you know, according to our estimates, according to uh, those of Card Ladder and, you know, a lot of great data sources out there in the hobby or recent comps uh, at auction or other marketplaces, there's at least 40 assets that are roughly about 50% below last sale. Uh, by our calculation, there's about 184 assets that are below what we believe to be fair market intrinsic value for these assets. So clearly there's opportunities on the secondary market and clearly there's opportunities for those valuation gaps to close. Uh, Without saying more, we are very much looking at solutions to this. Obviously the hope is that over time as liquidity continues to grow in the secondary market, that these gaps will 
uh, close organically. You know, we often see sometimes that these opportunities are what brings new investors to the marketplace. They see opportunities, they see you know potential to make money, and they and they come join the collectible community as a result of that. Uh, but we are working on something. I can't say more at this time, but we are looking to roll something out uh, early next year, which uh, I think will be a, a very interesting solution for this. What about the uh, considering the current asset owners the opportunity to vote to send an asset to, to public auction? Yeah, so it, it's something that we've done already, right? So we did this uh, last year when we curated uh, the Mint 25, which was a curated auction as part of the Mint Collective. We took 25 assets uh, to auction. Some, I think three of them, if I'm not mistaken, three of them were assets that were on the platform. So we've done this before. There's precedence for it. Uh, and I do imagine if these gaps continue to remain, that we will uh, look to be a little bit more aggressive in helping shareholders realize some of that liquidity. All right. I, yeah, I kind of, I was aware of the Mint 25, but I uh, kind of didn't put two and two together that, that there is a precedent for that. And you guys have done that. So I like that thinking outside the box and looking for opportunities for your your members and investors. All right, next question is: How come the pace of IPOs have slowed over the past few months? Do you plan right. to ramp it back up? Any information you can share on that? Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I always think transparency is very important, right? I always I always probably go into oversharing as opposed to undersharing. So I'll give I'll give some context uh, for it, right? And, and the reasoning behind that has been a couplefold. One is we've done everything through what's called Regulation A, uh, which is a securities exemption here in the U.S., which allows us to essentially fractionalize assets for uh, both accredited investors and unaccredited investors. When you, um, when you offer assets to unaccredited investors, and that's defined very clearly by the SEC, this is not a collectible definition, this is an SEC definition, and it's primarily based on, on income and net worth. When you do that, there's pretty onerous regulations around bringing assets to the market, right? So, you know, we have to essentially agree on a consignment, a deal with a consignor. We have to then file it for approval with the SEC. That process can take months, right? And we have to pre-agree on a price. And there's not that much flexibility around, you know, kind of price adjustments if the market either goes up or goes down, right? And so, you know, given the volatility we've seen in the collectibles market over the last couple of months, candidly, a lot of the uh, offerings that we uh, had qualified by the SEC were just not at values that we felt comfortable offering to our community. So we've been uh, proactive uh, in that for the most part. We have uh, and we are going to be making announcements for ways that we've uh, identified to speed up the process. Our hope is that it creates a much better consigner experience. And if you create a better consigner experience, it allows us to bring better assets uh, quicker and with better, sharper pricing to the community. So uh, it's really been proactive. We've done this proactive proactively, I should say, to uh, just make sure that what we do offer, you know, we, we feel good about. Obviously, people are not always going to agree on valuation. There's one thing I can tell you about the collectibles market is nobody agrees on a set price. And there oftentimes is not one set price. And oftentimes there's a lot of factors that go into a price, right? And so, you know, our team does a as good of a job as you possibly can to uh, bring assets, in my opinion, to the market at fair uh, prices. And if we don't feel that to be the case, then oftentimes we just, we, you know, we're just not going to run it. Yeah, interesting stuff. And I appreciate the the clarification, the transparency on that. And, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for the people who do submit buyout offers to collectible and other fractional ownership uh, platforms for their assets, because oftentimes these assets are very, very scarce. They're often one of one type of items or, just you know, wh whether it's a game used piece of memorabilia or a very rare one of one card like a logo man. And for someone to just to come up and make an offer of half a million dollars and up is a uh, 
it, it's a respectable uh, method or, or just confidence that they have in the item as to what it might be worth. And then it's up to the up to the seller or the unit holders to decide whether or not they are aligned on that. How is Collectible going about attracting new users to the platform, new investors? Yeah, I mean, we've taken we've taken a pretty multi-pronged approach. Uh, just you know, for uh, for transparency, I mean, we really haven't spent that much to acquire our users so far, right? I mean, I think it's been uh, we have over a hundred thousand signups in the platform, you know, roughly you know twelve, thirteen thousand active users. I don't have the exact number in front of me; it could be off by a little bit. Um, and we spent probably eight hundred to nine hundred grand to acquire them thus far. You know, we we do uh, fully anticipate those numbers expanding. We look forward to. Uh, you know, more aggressively investing uh, in user growth. But I also think a lot of our user growth will come through distribution networks, come through strategic relationships, strategic partnerships. And uh, we look forward to announcing some of those uh, hopefully as soon as we possibly can. All right. Yeah. Excited to see what comes with that. All right. Next question. Does Collectible plan to expand outside of just fractional ownership? We've seen Collectible establish itself in the live event space and the community space as well. Mm -hmm. Seems like there would be an opportunity to get into more traditional collector revenue streams as well. Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, if, I wish people could see our roadmap that we, that we put forth way back, even pre-Collectible. And uh, yeah, I mean, our roadmap has always been, let's start with fractional. Let's establish a really strong position in fractional. Let's establish a really strong position within sports collectibles and then kind of expand from there. So yes, I would say without going into more detail, we do uh, have plans to expand beyond just fractional ownership. We have a couple of uh, products and services that we are excited to roll out as, as community benefits more than anything, right? We're uh, allowing our community to kind of leverage the relationships uh, that we've built over the last couple of years to, you know, to, to benefit them. And I think that's, that's really exciting. You know, one thing we've seen and obviously here is that fractional is not for everyone. In this hobby, and that's okay, right? When you look at our numbers, you know, for for the most part, fractional has really attracted a more investor audience. Actually, when you look at you know our, our numbers, I mean, almost 80, 85 percent of the dollars that have flown through collectible so far have been accredited investors, right? And we think about accredited investors as a percentage of the total kind of collecting community. It's probably a, a fairly small percentage, right? And so we do uh, think there's an opportunity to do right by the hobby, to give back to the hobby, and to provide uh, real value-add services and benefits to our community. So we do look forward to making some announcements in the, in the pretty near future on that front. So this question did talk about, you know, live events and that. Let's go to the Mint Collective for a moment. Uh, the Mint Collective debuted in March of this year, uh, collectible in partnership with IMG and uh, Peyton Manning's Omaha. I, I don't know the full Productions. name. Productions. Yep. Omaha Productions. Uh, I was I attended the event. I loved it. I thought it was excellent. Uh, any updates or previews that you can share with us for the Mint Collective in 2023? Yeah, I mean, so I know there's a bunch of announcements coming in the next couple of weeks, so I won't steal uh, you know any, anyone's thunder there. But yeah, what I will say is that we are expanding the, the Mint Collective. You know, I think the the first year, you know, when you're starting a new show, you never really know what to expect. You never really know what kind of life it's going to take on. Uh, we were very uh, excited when the reception was seemed pretty positive, and I think it became a pretty differentiated show within the, the the hobby landscape. So, you know, what I can say is that it's being expanded. So instead of being three days like it was last year, it'll be four days, uh, and I think it'll have a little bit more of a you know sort of a consumer presence. If you know, if you'll take that, it's essentially more, you know, it'll be split between kind of the investor alternative asset community and also lean a little bit more into you know kind of a trade show 
uh, type, which really appeals more to consumers. So more, more to come on this front. Uh, the dates are set in stone. So the last couple of days in March, bleeding over into the first couple of days of April, it will be in Las Vegas. It will be at the same venue as it was last year at the MGM. Uh, and again, it'll be four days instead of three days. So more, more to come on this front, but we are, we are excited to bring this back. Let me ask you this about the Mint Collective, because one of the things I heard quite a bit about last year or earlier, the, the event from earlier this year, was that the panel discussions, these breakout sessions that happened in their own breakout conference rooms at the MGM, right close to the main the main event area, uh, were, were happening kind of simultaneously with another yeah. breakout panel discussion or during the card show portion. So people couldn't really decide what to do. Have you guys... What's the strategy to handle sort of those uh, issues that have been raised? Yeah, great, great question. Yeah, you're you're spot on, right? And we heard that feedback from a lot of people that hey, I did pick between going to this panel, this seminar, and learning, or kind of being on, on you know on the trade floor, on the show floor. So we are going to break it up. I uh, can't go into too many more details on that front, but you know the the idea is to by kind of expanding it one additional day, that you'll be able to separate. Know, kind of the, the the learning part of it from the connecting part from the transacting part uh, and so we we are we are excited by that you know I loved the panels last year I thought uh, they were engaging and I thought you know people really took to them I, I was in I was on a couple of panels and I sat in many many panels and you know for the most part they were pretty full and they were pretty engaging people were asking questions and you know the panelists were enjoying it I think a lot of people found value in it so we are also looking closely at what types of uh, panels what types of Know, topics we're going to be offering. And I think there's a real opportunity to continue to educate people on this market and to hear from you know, great entrepreneurs, great companies, uh, people who have a lot of influence, some who don't always have you know the public following that a lot of uh, people have. But I think there's a lot of value and a lot of smart people who have a lot of great things to say. And so you know we're going to try to give them as much of a pulpit as we can. Awesome. I look, I look forward to it. I enjoyed the, those breakouts as well as the ones that I got to be on and one of them that we were on together. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Continuing on the theme of live events, Collectible yeah. has been hosting networking dinners, events during I, during events like the National in Atlantic yeah. City, the Beckett Industry Summit in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago, uh, where you guys are sponsoring or with your partners, you're, you're hosting these events and people are having dinner, drinks, that sort of thing. What's the strategy uh, behind hosting these events that I must say uh, your colleague Dave Marino does a wonderful job of? promoting and uh, I don't know that there's a better host in the hobby to, uh, to that can work a room like he does but the strategy behind that what what, what do you uh, what can you tell us about that yeah well one I, I share your sentiments on David David I think is has been a godsend to this industry to this hobby uh, you know he has a real you know kind of hospitality background and so he's bringing that to the hobby and I think it's amazing uh, you know the, the the strategy is really nothing more than connectivity right we believe very strongly in community we believe very strongly in sort of a rising tides mentality. You know, we've always taken that position. We've been very consistent with that since the moment we launched to, you know, if you grow the hobby, if you grow the industry, then we're pretty secure and pretty comfortable in collectibles place within it, right? And so, you know, that, that has always been it is to, you know, to, to connect people, to connect uh, companies, to really grow the pie together. That actually was the whole thesis behind the Mint Collect in the first place was to grow the pie together. And so these are really just an extension off that it's also just fun. You know, I think, uh, you know, as much as I love these shows and, you know, kind of being on the floor and I, I do, I enjoy that. I enjoy meeting people, talking to people. You know, I think some of the, the uh, you know, the best times of these shows are actually off hours and people, you, know, you can really socialize with people. You can get to know people on a different level. 
you can sit down to dinner, break bread. And so, you know, we're, we're excited to continue doing that. And it's been great, you know, the types of sponsorships and the relationships that Collectible has built uh, during that. And, you know, some of those relationships are going to be, you know, part of community benefits are going to be able to offer, right? You know, through forging these relationships, th these connections, there are opportunities for our community to really benefit off those too. So more, more to come on all of this. I know I'm being you know, a coy with some of this, but um, we have been working hard and, you know, all this is part of a pretty holistic strategy that Collectible has taken since day one. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk about IPOs on the platform, the valuations of IPOs uh, when they are, when they are announced and when they are open for, uh, for people to purchase the, the shares of the items I've seen, I've seen people like I, I take in a lot of social media, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, etc. And I've seen a lot of people, I won't say a lot, I've seen certain people say that, you know, the, the fractional ownership platforms offer items at inflated value. Where do they get these amounts from? That's the kind of the sentiment. How do they come up with these numbers? Uh, they may argue that there aren't comps to support them. I don't know. I haven't researched them all. Yeah. But can you share some information with, I guess, number one, address that sentiment. And number two, provide us whatever you can, however much information you can on how does collectible come up with these market caps that the assets are are offered, the that the IPOs are, are offered under? Yeah, oh, great, great question again. You know, one, you know, I, I don't, I probably don't consume as much social media as you do. Uh, I, I try to as much as I can stay off social media, but obviously I see things, I hear things. Uh, as well. And what I will say is, you know, we, we always appreciate uh, the, the feedback, the, even the criticism, right? You know, I think that's that's great. It means we're, we're relevant and people are following us and people are looking at what we're doing. Uh, you know, I think the view that we're inflating assets is uh, almost complementary to collectible in, in a bizarre sense. I mean, the fact that we've done 250 assets total, right? 250 assets total and the view is that collectibles has that kind of impact on the market, I think just speaks to the power uh, that people think fractional has. I mean, obviously, you know, our job in this is to try as best as we can within, you know, regulatory uh, confinements to bring, you know, assets to the market at fair market prices, right? Think about what an investment bank does in the public markets, right? Uh, they bring companies to the market at fair market value based on those, you know, that day's or that week's market conditions. Market conditions can change, right? But, you know, they try to bring assets to the market at market conditions that they believe are fair, uh, at that time, there's a lot of assets that are e quite easy to comp. I mean, uh, one, I guess, that comes to mind is the 1986 Fleer or Michael Jordan, right? This trades pretty often, right? And you can look at card ladder and all that stuff for easy comparables. So those assets are easy to comp. Then there are other assets that are difficult to comp, right? Either they haven't sold in a long time or they sold, but, you know, there's been catalysts since then, or maybe, you know, they came at auctions that were, you know, just not well followed. I mean, there's, there's a whole host of things that go... Uh, into pricing. We have a valuation team on Collectible. We work with some of the leading experts in the field to come up with prices. We then also have a valuation committee right on Collectible. So everything goes probably through three or four different checks and balances uh, before even reaching the public. And some of those policies have been implemented over the last couple of months when, you know, the volatility has picked up and, you know, the, the, the desire to offer, you know, sharp value uh, is there. So again, I think that's one of those things where you cannot please everyone, right? There's all people who believe in evaluation, don't believe in evaluation. That's candidly one of the things I love about fractional, where you think about the auction space, you think about, you know, some of these other marketplaces, all it takes for evaluation is one person, right? One person has to believe in evaluation for that to be the new comp, the new price, right? 
With fractional, that's not the case, right? Fractional means oftentimes hundreds of people to agree or support something at that number in order for that to be successfully fractionalized, right? So sometimes we bring assets to the market and if people don't believe in it, it doesn't get funded and that's okay, right? I think that's totally fine, right? This is a market of price discovery. This is a market of kind of seeing where the market is on some of these things. So we do the best job we can. Uh, you look at some of these auction estimates, sometimes they're wildly off. I was just doing a story uh, recently about a vase. Here, here's a great example, right? A vase. They had you know, various appraisers and uh, auctioneers who gave it a $2,000 estimate at auction. I believe this was in Paris, obviously an extreme example, but it illustrates the point. The auction house and the experts value this at $2,000. The market, they value it at $9 million, right? So sometimes there's wild discrepancies between what people think something's worth and what ultimately one person's willing to pay for it or the market's willing to pay for it. So again, all I can say is we do the best we can, certainly not perfect. Uh, and we are working on ways actually for collectible to get out of the pricing game. And I think that's something that uh, we would like to do as much as regulations allow. Yeah, I think that that might be a nice thing for, for you and for others as well. Sounds like, uh, especially just the fact that you want to get there, I think there's obviously a reason for that. Um, there's, there's a sentiment out there that fractionals, so the, when, I, when we say fractionals, I think really within the sports card memorabilia world, we're talking about collectible, we're talking about rally. Uh, what, what, who else is out there that we're taught? There used to be um, Otis. I'm not sure if they're still around. Uh, you know, th that's who we're talking about with fractionals. And I think that there's a sentiment out there that believes that you guys, collectible and others, are out there buying items, bidding on items at auction, whether, you know, on whatever hobby auction site, and then offering them on your platform for sale. Um, I ask this question because is it true? Do you guys ever put items on the platform that you have bought yourselves or, or is it all consigned items? Yeah, uh, for the most part, it's consigned items. We have bought one or two pieces here and there. Uh, but you know, the, the vast majority of items that wind up uncollectible are not purchased directly by collectible. We work uh, pretty much on a consignment basis. We work directly with consignors. Obviously, auction prices do factor into the valuation equation, right? If something just sold at auction or sold recently, or if there's an auction comp, uh, it certainly informs the valuation that's brought to fractional investors. But we, uh, for the most part, are not the ones buying items at auction and kind of dictating that price that way. Uh, Without saying more, we are working on a tool that we hope to release in the next couple of months, which will actually allow uh, people to, you know, again, not collectible buying it, but our community uh, will be able to pool resources together to buy items at auction. I think that's just a really cool application uh, of fractional and getting you know, people to be able to have exposure to items that they might not otherwise afford or might not otherwise want to be able to have that much exposure to it, but still giving them some exposure to it. So. Um, yeah, I think, you know, just to answer your question, that's not collectibles business model to date has not been to, uh, to buy items and relist it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, look, again, I think, I think all the, you know, I think the perception that fractional has that kind of power, I think is almost flattering in a crazy way. Right. The fact that, you know, the, the belief is that, you know, fractional ownership has that much impact on market pricing, given, you know, how nascent we are, I think probably speaks to the confidence people have in the fractional space and the power of fractional space to, you know, be a major player in all this. So what is the, what is the thirst like out there for consignors to uh, send you guys items 
for the for the fractional platform do you have a lot of demand for from people who want to dispose of their items or a, what i like about it is that you can dispose a portion of your item you don't yeah. you can retain equity but that's besides the point what's the what's the demand for from the hobby to consign items to collectible it's strong. I mean, it, it's been strong since day one. I've, you know, I think the ability for people to sell partial positions has been something that, you know, has been a huge unlock for a lot of people. I mean, there are a lot of people who want partial liquidity, who don't, you know, want to lose full exposure to the items, still believe in the upside of these items. But, you know, for a whole host of reasons, people, you know, do want liquidity in this space. Oftentimes, this is what I, a term I use often, but it's a liquidity starved environment. So you're seeing things like lending, uh, you know, the proliferation of lending obviously is one form of liquidity. Fractional is another form of liquidity on the on the equity side, just kind of different forms of liquidity. Um, you know, our team gets a lot of inbounds and we take a very small percentage of it. We are looking for things that we think are kind of culturally and historically relevant things that, you know, and again, we curate for not just a quick flip, right? These are not quick flip instruments that we're curating. We're looking at things with a, a three to five year lens, right? So when people are looking at asset performance, I think that's an important thing for people to think about, right? We're not you know, necessarily curing things that we think are gonna go up day one, 40%. Uh, although at times there, that has been the case, you know, we've done 27 exits um, in almost a year's time with an average return above IPO of 60%. So not to say that it doesn't happen, but you know, it's very, very hard to curate items uh, with that kind of flip mentality in mind, hard to do that consistently right over time. So we look at items that we believe uh, we'll appreciate within a three to five year lens. And we take a very small percentage of that. We are, you know, if there's any consigners uh, who are out there listening to this, um, you know, the the regulatory, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it, the regulatory process to date has made consignments kind of clunky, right? There's a, a long lag time to kind of uh, get assets approved by the SEC. And during that time, you know, uh, asset values can change. And so we have uncovered, I'm very excited to roll this out in the next couple of weeks, couple of months, uh, we have uncovered a way where we can really reduce the lag time from consignment to IPO from what it is currently. Currently, it's probably a couple months, so that we have no real visibility into that, which is one of the more frustrating parts about kind of doing reg A fractional is we don't know, right? We don't know when the SEC is going to qualify it. They don't give you a lot of visibility. It's not a very communicative organization over at the, at the SEC as much as we you know, sort of wish that uh, it were. So we have uncovered a way where we can bring items uh, to the market within one week. Right. So from three months to one week, which is a huge unlock uh, and it will create a much easier, more convenient and frankly, better uh, consigning experience. And for us, it allows us to price assets far easier, far better. Right. We know that the price that we're going to agree today is, uh, you know, is what it's going to be. Right. And I think overall, that's going to be just a much better experience for everybody. Uh, and we're very excited to make some announcements on that front shortly. Oh, I was excited to see what what it is what that hack was that you found uh, to to unlock that. That's really exciting. Uh, Contender Sports says, "I love listening to these interviews because they remind me just how unintelligent <laughs> I actually am." Good to see you, Contender, two days in a row. Fred says, "Isn't it a slippery slope if you are buying your own items and setting IPOs for them on collectible afterwards?" I thought you pretty much just said that you don't do that, but you did say you've done it a couple times. Uh, do you want to address that? Yeah. So again, you know, Fred, it's not something we really do, right? You know, the, the, again, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. I think we've probably done it on one or two occasions where we purchased an item that we, we really loved and we weren't able to get it any other way besides purchasing uh, it at auction, some pretty rare items. Um, so we really have not participated much in 
acquiring items. We really work directly with consignors, but I do want to make it very clear that you know auction results do factor into the valuations of items that we bring to the market. So it's not completely decoupled, but uh, it's typically not collectible being the one buying it and then realistic it higher. All right, back to uh, you know some of the content I consume: social media, Twitter, Instagram, those kinds of things. I've seen a couple of accounts post sentiments that uh, that fractional is just no good for the hobby. And one of them, one post I saw recently said that the two worst things to happen to the hobby. I, one one this poster said was Instagram. Or sorry, was uh, was fractional. I think the other they said was breaking. Um, I think I'm not, I don't recall hundred percent, but I certainly noticed when they said fractional, um, I guess two questions for you on that. Uh, and I see, I see, I see certain accounts on Twitter sort of attack the whole concept. Why do you think these people, uh, what, what, what do you think they're seeing that, that you're not, why do you think they have that sentiment? And, uh, and what, yeah, what's your response to these sort of, uh, narratives that are, be, that are trying to be created out there? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, you know, one thing, by the way, we knew this when we got into this, right? You know, the, the hobby, unfortunately, or fortunately, and I'm not sure, but, you know, fortunately, uh, or unfortunately, I should say, uh, has a checkered past, a checkered history of embracing new uh, entrants, new upstarts, new concepts, new, techno- new technologies, new ideas. This has been pretty consistent. I remember, you know, hearing uh, about this when grading was first, you know, sort of brought to the market. People hated grading. People hated it, right? And they tried to smash it. And grading didn't really take off for a long time. I and mean, a lot of people don't realize this, but PSA had some dark years, had some pretty quiet years. And now obviously grading, uh, you know, especially tag, you know, Jeremy, I know you're involved in tag now. Grading, I don't think people could argue, you know, grading has been one of the biggest advents to the market, has really allowed for, you know, better pricing and standardization. And, you know, has really led to a lot more transaction volume, probably safety and security across the industry. Uh, obviously, breaking is another prominent example when a lot of these breaking companies first launched people slammed it. And now, you know, you look at the numbers flowing through grading uh, and they're huge. Right. And so, look, I mean, I have a healthy appreciation for skepticism. Right. I mean, I, you know, we hear the critics, we listen to the critics, the critics make us better. I mean, honestly, right. I appreciate them because they point out things that, by the way, we know, right. Like we know there are some challenges with the fractional model and that's why we work tirelessly every day to try to create better experiences, right. And to, and to price things better and to have, you know, quicker, you know, speed to the market and to find ways to kind of deliver shareholder value and other benefits to our community. So, um, you know, I don't think our critics or our skeptics know anything we don't know. I think we probably feel and know things that they are pointing out well before they do. Um, and, you know, I would say, look, fractional is not for everyone. I mean, I, I want to make that very clear. We fully expect that there's going to be a decent amount of the hobby population who hates fractional just because it's not what they're accustomed to, right? And there's a lot of people who, don't get the idea of having ownership of something they can't touch and feel and see. They don't think collectibles are alternative assets. They don't think these are financial instruments. And I get that, right? That's you're totally entitled to your opinion. We happen to have a slightly different opinion, but it's not to say they're right or we're wrong or we're right and they're wrong. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, right? So what I can say is fractional is not for everyone. Uh, I appreciate the skeptics because it makes us build a better product and to uh, kind of understand where the pain points are. Um, and you know, what I will say is also is that hopefully, you know, with some of the new products and services we're rolling out, maybe, maybe we have something for these people who don't like fractional, but want to kind of be part of the, of the collectible community. So, um, again, we hear everything, we see everything and it really fuels us to build a better product. So thank you. 
All right, good. I, I appreciate that. Um, I had a question come up uh, from my friend Stamatis, and it's really wondering what fractional is. I'm going to put it mm -hmm. up there. I don't understand the whole question, but he says, is fractional ownership a stock share on that specific card? If so, how are people paying towards it and who decides to pull their share? So I, I think really he's asking is how do you buy it and how do you sell it? And with, yeah. with you, when you, I think this is good to answer for anybody who may not know what, what fractional really is. Can you also, Ezra, in your response to that, just speak to what is what do you see as the value proposition of fractional ownership via collectible? Yeah, I mean, I think there's various value propositions, of, you know, just kind of depending if you're a buyer or a seller or, you know, so you know, for, for buyers, I mean, the biggest benefit is really exposure to own items that you would never otherwise be able to afford. I mean, we see all these record headlines and, you know, news articles about this million dollar sale and that million dollar sale and the high end of the industry. And they're great for publicity. But unfortunately, when you take a step back, you know, very few people can really participate at that level. Right. And so really what it allows is for people who want to own that Mantle 52 in a high grade. Right. Or, you know, that Jordan, you know, 86 Fleer in a 10 or a Wilt Chamberlain, you know, full home uniform, these iconic pieces. Right which otherwise they would have no opportunity to afford any other way or to own any other way. It really gives them a very easy on-ramp uh, into ownership of it. So you own real you know, equity, you own real uh, you know, kind of shares in that asset and you participate in any economic you know, upside as a result of that ownership in it. Um, you know, the other thing is, is sometimes people just like fractional, uh, even if they could afford it, they like it because it's just much easier, right? As opposed to buying an item and vaulting it and insuring it and selling it and all that stuff, you can just literally with a couple clicks of your mouse uh, or on your phone, right? You could have, you know, you could be an owner of these things without any of the pain points. So often what we're seeing is oftentimes fractional is sort of that first on-ramp uh, into new collectors or investors in collectibles, whatever you want to call them, to really, you know, develop a love and an affinity for collectibles. I think that's, you know, so that's something that's pretty powerful for sellers, uh, gives them the ability, you know, I think the major thing sellers love about it is they can sell partial stakes in collectibles. So before, just to take a step back, before collectible introduced this concept, you know, if you want to sell something, your options are sell all of it or sell none of it, right? You either had to make a decision, do you want to sell it and may never see it again, or do you want to just not sell it at all, right? Now you can sell, you know, you can sell a partial stake in an asset. You can sell 50%, 75%, 25%, right? It gives you liquidity without having to kind of forego any ownership of it. So I think those, I can go on and on and on about all the benefits, but I think those uh, succinctly are the three benefits. So in essence, when you are retaining equity and only disposing of 50% of the equity of the item, you're in essence only consigning 50% of the equity or 50% of the item to collectible and you retain 50% ownership as well. Just just to clarify that, another another hurdle I hear from people is that, you know, I want to hold my cards in hand. I don't want to just yeah. buy it and look look at a stock or like a, a valuation report of what my what my holdings are worth. I want to hold these cards in hand. But at the same time, some of the same people are buying cards and vaulting them with the various vaulting services, whether it's PWCC or Golden or eBay. Uh, you know, they're doing it that way as well. So I think I think uh, it it makes sense for a lot of people. Like you said, it's not going to be for everybody. I'm a I'm a lifelong collector. I love having my cards in hand. I'm not that interested in vaulting services. I see the benefit of them, especially for high value cards because you deal with you, with natural disasters, fires, floods, theft, mm -hmm. etc. But uh but 
I have, I, if I was eligible to invest on collectible, I'm not because I'm Canadian, but if I was, and I don't, I don't have a social security number, but if I was, I'd have no problem investing on collectible items as a compliment to what I'm already collecting and holding in hand because I cannot afford a PSA eight or seven Mickey Mantle 52 tops card. Well, just on, on your last point about you not being able to participate as a result of you being Canadian, what I, another uh, exciting announcement that we have is we've cracked the code on, on international participation. Oh, good. Okay. So, uh, and I'm, I'm and hearing that for the first time right now. So that's music to my ears. We, we've been working hard on this for the last two years. Uh, Canada, unfortunately, I don't think will be our first market we're going to roll out, but we are anticipating being in the UK and Australia will probably be the first two markets we open up. Uh, we are anticipating being in those markets sometime early 2023. Canada is very much on the roadmap. Uh, Asia, you know, in Asia Pacific, very much on the roadmap. So, you know, when people talk about liquidity and kind of opening up, you know, uh, you know, kind of doors to new countries and new participants. That's another uh, key thing that we're doing is we're opening up the ability for international collectors and investors to also participate on Collectible. Uh, and so we're, we're very excited about that. Good. Oh, I, I'm excited about that too. And so is this particular Facebook user right here. All right. Um, will Collectible expand outside of sports? Right now you are exclusively sports cards yeah. and memorabilia. Uh, will you expand outside of that? So again, I wish people could see our roadmap uh, from even pre-launch, right? So what we always contemplated was going to be the first two years of our operation, we we're going to stick strictly to sports. And then starting in 2023, we we're going to open the door to other verticals, like a lot of other marketplaces do. And so the short answer is we're very much on track with our roadmap. Uh, we do anticipate opening up some other verticals. Uh, how we do this, I think, will be um, innovative and exciting. Uh, we're also working on and finalizing partnerships with um, you know some supply uh, partners in various different categories. So we will be ex uh, expanding beyond sports. Some of our con uh, content efforts have already been talking about things that are not just sports specific. So we're excited about that. And again, this has always been something that the roadmap has uh, contemplated. 2023 was always our goal of expanding beyond sports. And I'm excited to say that we're, we are smack on track. Awesome. Well, one of the, I have two more questions here, then I'm going to open it up to you for some announcements. Uh, was what can be expected from Collectible to close out 2022? You've mentioned a bunch of things already. Is there anything else that you haven't mentioned that you'd like to uh, announce or address? Yeah, no. I mean, what I will say is that for the last couple of months have been, you know, really kind of head, you know, head down building. I've got a lot of things in the pipeline right now. A lot of new products and services we're excited to uh, be rolling out. One thing I can say, uh, you know, publicly on the record is. Uh, we are going to be doing a big event at Art Basel. For people who don't know what Art Basel is, Art Basel is, I would say, one of the leading uh, activations and shows and events uh, for high-end uh, art collectors and high-end collectors of different stripes. It's in Miami. And so last year we threw one event and the feedback was terrific. So we're going to be throwing a whole host of events. I believe we're the first you know, collectibles company outside of high-end art to uh, have an exhibit uh, directly on the beach of Miami during Art Basel. So really, really excited about this. I think one thing we've seen is the narrative of other types of collectibles, especially sports collectibles being looked at in the same vein as fine art. We've seen this with game war memorabilia. We've seen this with, you know, Mickey Mantle cards, right? You know, this has been part of the narrative. And so we're very excited to put sports collectibles uh, and other types of collectibles on display at Art Basel for that narrative to really take shape. So more, more to come in terms of, you know, who our partners are in this event, um, but really, really excited to make that announcement that we will be doing something big at Art Basel. A couple of other announcements will be coming as, as part of that. All right. And I, th I think I'm just looking at you did give me a preview on these announcements. I think that we've addressed all of those uh, 
through right now, Art Basel, and just over the past 55 minutes, we have about five minutes left in our time slot. I have one more question from you, which is kind of a wrap-up question, but I do want to just address the the chat, everybody watching. If you have any questions for Ezra, uh, now is the time because we are at the end of our list. The question I'm about to ask him is a more general market-type question. So if you have any more questions for him, get them in the chat right now. We will try to get to them. And with that, Ezra, my last question on my list is, what is your outlook on the market overall based on where we're at today? Yeah, so are we, are we talking about the card market? Uh, well, let's talk about sports. Hey, listen, I'm more interested in sports cards than memorabilia. I don't really collect memorabilia. So for me, I'm curious to hear about sports cards. Collectible, yeah. however, handles sports cards and sports memorabilia. So however you'd like to approach it. Well, look, man, again, you know, when we talk about the market, you have to segment it, obviously, in a lot of different ways, right? There's kind of the blue chip, you know, kind of high-end market. And then there's, you know, kind of more of the collector's market, kind of the mid-tier I don't want to say lower tier because people who collect lower tier, you know, think those are prize jewels than they are, right? They are, you know, might not be in value necessarily, but, you know, kind of your affinity for it, certainly, you know, uh, meaningful. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think the market's in a pretty interesting spot, right? I mean, I think overall, not to say everything is done better than expected, but I would say given the macro circumstances, given inflation, given where all the broader markets are, I'm pretty encouraged. I really am. I mean, we look at Again, the high-end sports card market. Obviously, there has you know been a little bit of a come down in price, but you know the best of the best, right? The the tentpole, you know, beachfront properties as we call them, have done extraordinarily well, right? We're seeing record prices in mantle cards. You know, there were great results last weekend. I think at Leland's on on uh, on Willie Mays cards, right? So you're seeing you're seeing vintage, you know, kind of scarce assets really hold up. I think exceptionally well. I, I saw something earlier. Uh, the card ladder 50 index or last quarter at a time where there's been a lot of, you know, kind of macro turmoil. I think it's up 8% if my numbers were correct. If, so, I mean, I think given that, I think the market's in a good, good spot. Obviously, you know, there's the elephant in the room with Fanatics and what that's going to do, you know, with, with some of the primary market. I think that's going to be very interesting. You know, we have we had a meeting with Fanatics recently. And, you know, what I can say firsthand is, um, you know, I, I think they care about the market. I think they want to bring a lot of exposure to the market. I think they want to bring a lot of marketing prowess to the market. And, you know, I think I think they, you know, are here to kind of help grow it right to a more mainstream audience. So overall, uh, when it comes to sports cards, I do think, you know, there's been um, like with the exception of the high end vintage, there's been some softening. I think it's interesting to look at the correlations between some of the modern cards and things like cryptocurrencies. I think there's probably a little bit of liquidity unwind happening there, I think there's probably a little bit of leverage in the system that still needs to come out. Uh, I think it'll be interesting, you know, kind of how things take shape in early next year as people start to get, you know, 1099s and, you know, have tax consequences and all. I think that'll be interesting. But, you know, certainly I think uh, for the most part, I'm pretty encouraged. When it comes to game-worn memorabilia, I mean, I'm. this has been something that I've been, not, not to say all my predictions are correct, because believe me, if you see my survivor picks, you know otherwise, but um, you know, I've said for a long time, I did not understand, we did not understand, you know, why game-worn memorabilia was so mispriced relative to cards for a long time. I think you're starting to see, you know, that gap close. We've seen record headlines in game-worn memorabilia. Um, knowing what I know, coming down the pipeline, there's a couple big game-worn memorabilia assets that are going to be hitting the auction block uh, over the next couple of months. So I think that narrative of game-worn memorabilia continuing to rise is one that uh, I certainly believe in, not security advice, but I certainly believe in game-worn memorabilia. And then I think some of these other, you know, smaller verticals are interesting too. I mean, I, obviously, you know, I think we've seen kind of the rise and fall of some subcategories. 
know, tickets had a big run. Now, they, now they've come back to earth. Um, but I think things like graded magazines are really interesting. There's a real collector, strong collector base. There's IP. Uh, they're really beautiful to look at. So I, th- I believe in those markets as well. So look, overall, you know, I think the market, given where we, given the macro environment, I'm pretty encouraged with what I'm saying. Awesome. Okay, I appreciate that. It's a lot, a lot of good insight there. And it's interesting to hear your views. You mentioned graded magazines. I, I do know we will have uh, on a, a soon, a near future guest of Collectible Live will be somebody who's very active in the graded Sports Illustrated magazine world. And I'm looking forward to having that gentleman on the show and learning from him. Uh, we didn't have another question just came in. I'll, I'll get to it. But first, you know, you know that I'm involved with tag grading, which yeah. is com- automated AI computerized grading of sports cards. And, you know, you're also the CEO of a platform that deals in graded sports cards quite quite often. I don't think you would ever have an item on your platform that is not graded. Uh, what are you, you know, I'm going to, I'm sort of self-serving here, but what are you hearing about automated grading and what do you, how do you see it kind of rolling out over the future? Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I think obviously it's been, it's been a response to, you know, some of the backlog that we've seen over the last couple of years. I think uh, every company for the most part is looking at ways to, you know, kind of speed the process up and to address uh, those backlog concerns. Um, I did see tag firsthand at the industry summit and I will say uh, it was very impressive. Right. And I think that the level of transparency is uh, very important. I mean, one thing, um, you know, that we, we hear all the time, right, is, you know, why do this nine sell for much higher or much lower? Why do this 10 sell for much higher or lower? Or, <clears throat> excuse me, a 10 is not a 10, that's a 10, right? One 10 is, has much better eye appeal than another 10. So there's all these intricacies uh, in the market. And I think the level of transparency that TAG provides does answer some of those questions around, well, why is, you know, one 10 worth more than another 10? So, uh, if nothing else, I, I very much appreciate the transparency. I mean, I think Collectible hopefully uh, has done a lot for transparency in the space. We continue uh, to do a lot of things for transparency and regulation in the space. Uh, I also hope that, and I know that you know a lot of other grading companies are probably looking uh, at similar things and providing more transparency and data to the market. So I think anytime you know you're seeing increases in transparency, increases in increases in data. Um, and regulation, I think that's a good thing for the market overall. So uh, I was impressed. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's only good for the market. All right. And Punt Pass Click says, are there any plans to showcase the assets to the public? For example, creating a curated exhibit that are ticketed events where the pooled profits get distributed to asset shareholders. Yeah, great, great question there. So yeah, uh, yes, I will say, I think this is one of the ways that Collectible can do better and do more, right, is to do kind of fun, interactive community things like this. Um, we have put assets on display before. We have our Babe Ruth asset uh, is actually at the Babe Ruth Origin Museum in Baltimore. Uh, we're probably going to work on something with the Seattle Kraken, where we have a pretty cool offering of the first six jerseys the Kraken ever wore on the ice will hopefully be on display at the Kraken Arena. We did something recently with a Carlton Fisk ball, we put that on display at Fenway Park. So I do think things like that are great ideas and ones that, um, you know, I think we're going to lean more into just kind of keeps falling off of our roadmap. We've got a lot of other things to do, um, but I love the idea and uh, we'll, we'll certainly look to implement some of that going forward. Right on. And Vintage Baseball Card Pack says, thanks for your time and sharing an update on what Collectible is doing. I definitely think we uh, we covered just about everything we could. Punt Pack Punt past clicks. That's very cool. I need reasons to get out of the house. There you go. All right. Well, I think we're uh, we're going to wrap this up, Ezra. So uh, with that, let me just make a couple of short announcements here. 
Collectible Live will be back this Sunday at 7 o'clock Eastern. Guest to be announced. Juggling a couple just with scheduling uh, scheduling accommodations. The Sunday after, there will not be an episode, but we will do it on the Monday or Tuesday after the next Sunday. Maybe not Monday because I believe that's the Halloween. So Tuesday, November the 1st, I believe will be the episode after this coming Sundays. Also, I'll let everybody know tonight on the Sports Cards Live YouTube channel, we will be covering the PWCC Premier Auction as we do every month. And Saturday night on Sports Cards Live as well, we have an episode with the uh, the organizers of the Union Marketplace card show. So excited for all these episodes upcoming. I uh, want to wish everybody a great night, a great next few days. Hope to see you tonight and Saturday on the channel. And of course, Sunday on Collectible Live. Ezra, final words to you, and then we are going to sign off. Yeah, no, and look, I, you know, I think the final words are, look, you know, all, all I can say is we have, we have a great team. We work very hard. Uh, I think integrity is very important, especially sometimes in, in the collectible space. So, you know, you, you always get that from us. Uh, we're very open. We're very open to suggestions and feedback. And so please keep them coming. And we very much appreciate your support and look forward to rolling out some of the things we have in store. Awesome. All right. And thank you, Fred, for, uh, for that comment right there. That is going to end it, everybody. Thank you for joining us tonight, Ezra. Thank you so much for answering thank all you, the community's questions. And uh, hang tight right there for a moment, Ezra. Everybody else, thank you again. This episode is over. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.